Welcome to the View from the Front. My name is Stan, and this is the September 14th edition. Thanks so much for joining us. It's going to be a great show. We're going to have a little fun. I'm going to share with you some stuff I'll bet you probably didn't know. And is it amazing that fall is here or what? Got football. Temperatures are finally cooling down a little bit. Uh, Just a great time of the year. If you are new to the show, let me say as background that I'm a proud moderate. Quite frankly... Those on the far right, those on the far left, both sides really get on my nerves. Because if you kept up with politics very long, you probably know that those who are the loudest and the most stern, they often keep progress from happening. Politics, government, that is about compromise. That is about taking steps in the direction and not always getting what you want. It's not a real popular thing to say in America these days, but that's the reality. A little about myself, besides being a proud moderate, I covered the news for more than 10 years as a journalist, even owning a small local newspaper for nine years in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Prior to that, and prior to getting a journalism degree, I spent four years in the Marines carrying a rifle, spent that time in the infantry. Every week I do three things. I cover hotspots and defense news happening around the world that could affect the United States. I definitely bring up our troops in any major deployments or situations that they are involved in. I also try to unite our country. And finally, I always share plenty of motivation and wisdom at the end of each episode because I want to help encourage you, help lift you up a little bit, and just make a positive impact. So thanks for joining us. Really hope you get something from the show. So we begin with an update on the Ukrainian counteroffensive. There have been no major gains since last week. They have continued to advance on several axes and gaining ground. And so you can see that in some of the maps, but nothing major yet. They continue to be cautious in their advances. So not going to attack or condemn or criticize or any of that stuff. It just is what it is. One thing that I did learn since last week is there is apparently a name for what the Ukrainians are doing in previous episodes I talked about it's kind of strange how they are attacking among or in so many areas across so broad of a front since that kind of goes against US tactics and NATO tactics and maneuver warfare combined arms warfare the things that the West has been doing for a long time it doesn't seem like they're really doing that But I did learn this week that apparently what the Ukrainians are doing is what they are calling it three S's, basically. The term is stretch, starve, and strike. So the three S's are they're attacking along a broad front because they don't want the Russians to be able to to determine precisely where the main effort will be. So they are stretching the Russian defenses by pushing in several areas they are starving them because they are attacking all forms of logistics they're hitting any supply depots they're trying to take out trucks or trying to hit bridges anything that the russians are using to supply and feed their troops obviously hitting ammo dumps as well they are hitting those so they want to starve them of food they want to starve them of ammunition and then finally they are striking in several areas and probably have not done their major strike yet. If you watch interviews with President Zelensky or some of the Ukrainian defense ministers, 
one of the number one themes in almost all of those interviews is that they are not wanting to waste a single Ukrainian life. They are not being super risky in their attacks. They're probing. They know that they are almost outnumbered. Probably are in pure numbers, not in combat power, but in pure numbers. And so they're just being cautious. And their NATO-supplied weapons have better range, have better accuracy. And so basically week by week, month by month, they are getting stronger and the Russian forces are getting weaker. And so they just don't want to lose a lot of troops in a reckless attack. That's essentially... The short of it. So again, the name is Stretch, Starve, and Strike. While we are on the subject of this counteroffensive, I gotta say, I read a Washington Post column last week that has really stuck with me. And it's almost really made me evaluate some things that, as far as, it, to me, I've been optimistic from the beginning, as the longtime listeners know. But it increasingly seems to me like it's almost nothing short of a miracle that the Ukrainians have managed the success that they have in this counteroffensive. And I just want to share some of what was shared in this Washington Post column. These were remarks made by a retired U.S. Army Brigadier General. His name was Mark Arnold. Done multiple tours in Afghanistan and Iraq. But he's been to Ukraine a lot. And advised, I guess, to some degree them and and consulted as a private citizen. But the interesting thing is he talks about that the Ukrainians lack a lot of the mobility equipment and anti-tank mine blades and heavy rollers that they just don't have the same level of equipment that an army mechanized infantry brigade or battalion would have. And he he really gets down into the weeds in this column. And one thing he talks about is that, and I'll just read one of his quotes. If you add all the Bradley fighting vehicles, Leopard 2 or Leopard 2, Challenger 2 tanks, and other equipment, the Ukrainians could outfit only one brigade. And he says only six battalions of the 300, of about, of the roughly 350 battalions in the ground forces have been trained in combined arms by NATO. So I've got to say, those numbers seem a little, as far as how many battalions were trained, this seems a little bit lower than I even thought. So only six battalions of the 350 battalions have been trained in combined arms by NATO. So six battalions, according to him. I feel like that number, I thought it, maybe they've sold it better because different units have been rotated in. But I thought the number was higher than that. So he says six battalions. But the crazy thing that really, really sticks out is he talks about the Ukrainian military training. And he says the Western training of of the Ukrainian military during the past 15 months. This is how this is broken down. Check this. It's 85% basic training. So 85% basic training. Basic training is like, here's how you clean your rifle. Here's how you... You know, learn to fire it, accuracy, basic training. We're talking basic training. He then says 5% of it is small unit leader training, and then 10% is battalion training. And so one of the points he makes is that when you are 
for those who have served, this sounds really elementary, but if you'll give me just a moment to explain. When, when you're in the infantry, you initially learn fire team and squad tactics, how to get everyone online, how to provide a base of fire while maybe a fire team flanks. And then you start, you do platoon stuff as well. A platoon has three squads in most cases. So you learn to move a platoon around and you've got a lieutenant or a staff sergeant who's leading or a platoon sergeant, depending on, I know ranks vary depending on Army or Marine Corps, but you do platoon stuff. And then you sometimes do company size maneuvers. And that's about 100 troops, three to four platoons. And, you know, you've got same ideas, base of fire, maybe the flanking elements of platoon size. But he makes the point, and anyone who served in U.S. military forces know, at some point, U.S. military units do much larger attacks. And like we went out to the Mojave Desert, and it's an entire battalion, you know, it's like four companies, a headquarters company. So there's like five to six companies, and you've got artillery attachments, you've got uh, all kinds of air assets attached, helicopters, uh, attack jets. And so you've got this massive, you'll get tanks attached to you. And so you learn to use all of these elements in these large scale attacks. And then it's no longer about like a platoon or a fire team or a squad. You have entire companies, you know, doing flanking maneuvers. Maybe two companies maneuver elements are doing this or that. But the officers in these situations get a lot of very realistic, hard training because they'll be observers and they'll say, hey, you're under artillery fire right now. What are you going to do? You know, or this is happening. What are you going to do? And it's very stressful for the officers. And you do this during training so that when you do it for real, you are prepared for that. But I was a little shocked to read just how little large-scale maneuver training the Ukrainian military has had. That isn't good. He then goes into talking about how some of the officers just have not had the kind of training that U.S. military and Western and NATO officers would get. You know, when I was in, and I'm sure it's that way now, there are always what they call sand table exercises where officers are constantly going through basically rehearsed battles or unrehearsed or you know you build the sand table up and you're like hey there's a mountain here you're moving your troops through you're under fire what do you do so that you can do these things without having to get all the troops and all the equipment out and getting it muddy and having to do all the maintenance so they're constantly going through these things so i'm not sure how much the ukrainians are doing that but he just makes the point that the ukrainians are have done way more of the basic training at the individual level in squad and platoon versus the company and battalion level and even regiment and larger. Obviously, division is well outside anything they're capable of at this point. And so I think that might actually explain partly why they have done so many of these really small attacks. They may have some platoons that are better trained up than others. And so that's probably why they're probing forward for some of these minefields to reduce casualties, but also because that is what they are most skilled at. They have worked on smaller unit stuff. So my broader point is, just reading that, it's, it seems to me it's almost like nothing short of a miracle that the Ukrainians have managed the success that they have to this point because it was pretty eye-opening to realize how little large-scale maneuver warfare they've done, even in peacetime training, 
before going to do it live in real war with artillery barrages coming in. I mean, I can't imagine just having trained the way I have and most of the listeners have who are prior military or military now. It it would not be fun to go into that without having done and having your officers have done larger scale training operations because ultimately you're only as strong as your weakest link and you're only as strong as your officer corps and I say that even as an enlisted guy but the officers have to be able to control all the elements control all the communications and when friction starts and the fog of war begins if that starts to break down it doesn't matter how good the ground troops are because they're not being led correctly and maneuvered to the right places so little a little concerning hearing some of that I definitely did want to share it I'll put a link in the episode notes if you want to go check out that article and I'll just I'll make it a gift link as well the name of the article is Ukraine may have a better chance to win in 2024 a retired US general says and like I said it's a gift link so if you want to go read it you can he does talk about that he thinks that the war will not end this year and that Ukraine needs to continue to prepare for the long haul, including fighting next year. He also strongly urges the Biden administration not to be short-term thinking, but that next year, once the M1 tanks have arrived, once the F-16s have arrived, and once the long-range missiles that I'm going to talk about in a moment have arrived, that Ukraine is going to be better positioned for stronger counteroffensive pushes. Moving along, I had planned to move into an unbelievable missile attack that the Ukrainians pulled off against the Russians in one of their ports in Crimea, but it actually kind of flows better to just talk about, since we've already talked about next year and more weapon systems for the counteroffensive, to just go ahead and talk about the news this week that the U.S. is on the verge of sending the ATACOMS or the Army Tactical Missile System to Ukraine. I have in previous episodes kind of dipped my toes into that. That is something that the Ukrainians have been begging for for quite a while now. And so let's just dive into those just a bit, just in case you're not fully familiar with them. Let's talk about what they are, what they do, etc. So if you'll be patient with me for just a second, we'll go over that just briefly. Now, the background is these are long-range, surface-to-surface guided missiles. Again, the ATACOMs are called Army Tactical Missile Systems. They are fired out of the HIMARS, the multiple launch rocket system that we have talked about that so much the past year. But essentially, they are a larger missile. The U.S. is finally getting to the point of sending those because... Months ago, they were worried about escalation and worried that Ukraine would fire the rockets from the HIMARS, the multiple launch rocket system. They were worried that Ukraine would launch those into Russia out of frustration or maybe desperation when the war was a little bit more up in the air. Ukraine has been very cautious. They gave guarantees they would not use those weapons in any way that would make it, uh, you know, some type of a pr- provocative type thing where Russia might expand the war. And, and they have stood by what they promised. And so 
the U.S. has gotten less worried that Ukraine will use those weapons inside Russia because they haven't done so. Even though Ukraine has been using some of its drones, some of its own weaponry, weaponry inside Russia, they have not used these U.S.-provided rockets or some of the other stuff that we've sent. So the U.S. has been getting less and less worried about that. And so they're finally ready to send something that's even better than the High Mars multiple launch rocket system. So these ATACMs have a much large, longer range. They will actually reach out to 186 miles, which is just an incredible distance. Again, they're fired from the ground. They're actually ballistic, and then they land 186 miles away on target. They have a further range than even those Storm Shadow missiles that the UK provided. There has been obviously a lot of discussion of that. I covered those in the podcast several months ago. They've been using those very effectively. The Storm Shadow missiles from the UK have a range of 155 miles, but these ATACMs are almost 30 more miles, 186 miles versus 155. So right at, what, 31 miles difference. So 31 miles on the battlefield is a very long way. So the ATACMs have that further range than the Storm Shadow. Also, what's great about these is the Storm Shadow missiles have to be launched from aircraft. These are launched from the ground, so they're just easier to use by far than the Storm Shadow missiles. Now, a little bit about the ATACMs that came up, I think it was last week with the Adam Kinzinger clip that I shared. The U.S. does have a new missile called the Precision Strike Missile, which will travel 310 miles versus the 186, so it's going to be much better. But those haven't fully arrived. There's, the Army's supposed to start receiving missiles that from these Precision Strike Missiles beginning this year which would allow more ATACMs to be delivered, but some of that stuff's classified, and they really haven't begun arriving yet. So the U.S. is going to have them, and as the year ends and the new year begins, there'll be more and more of them that could be transferred. Somewhat similarly to the ATACMs, France did announce that it's sending its own version of the Storm Shadow. These are called, they're known as scalps. So... Ukraine is definitely getting some assistance on their long-range fires that should help a bit pretty soon, I hope. So, not sure when it's exactly going to happen. There was some discussion. Right now, it's mostly Pentagon officials leaking it to the press. There is some speculation that it might be announced next week. Most articles say it'll be in the next aid package that the U.S. announces, but... The range is very, very long, and as we said in previous episodes, it's going to cut off the land bridge because where the Sea of Azov is, where the the push in the southern part in the Zaporizhia area, it's going to increasingly get difficult for the Ukraine or for the Russians to stop the Ukrainians from basically choking them out. Slowly but surely, like some big boa constrictor, they're going to choke off their land routes, and they're going to start targeting that Kerch Bridge more. Speaking of missile strikes, 
Ukraine just, I can't even, man, this is like such big news. They conducted an unbelievable missile strike on occupied Sevastopol, Crimea. There's a naval port there that Russia has illegally occupied and been using for its navy that once controlled, obviously, the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov. But they've brought their ships in. Anyone who's been keeping up the war knows that they've lost ships and they've these drones that the Ukrainians have been using, these naval drones, have been wrecking havoc. So one of the things you, Russia did to basically counter that is they've brought all their ships into port. But literally today, September 13th, or it'll be yesterday when you're listening, Ukraine conducted an unbelievable strike on this naval port and it's now been verified initially it was just nothing but videos online and everyone was speculating what did they hit but it's now been verified by the institute for the study of war the isw that this this strike ukrainians aren't saying much about how it happened some analysts speculate that ukrainian aircraft somehow carried missiles and got close enough to launch these missiles you can see the strike of missiles, but it's it's not real clear how it happened yet. Hopefully that comes out soon. But these missile strikes damaged a Russian landing ship, which is a huge one. I'll have a photo of it in the episode notes. They damaged a Kilo-class submarine, and they damaged port infrastructure pretty pretty badly. The satellite imagery, according to the ISW, again, that's the Institute for the Study of War, says that when... And I'll probably mispronounce this, but Ropucha class landing ship, one kilo class submarine, and the satellite imagery shows that it likely destroyed the two vessels. This is a huge loss for Russia. I, I can't even I can't even put it into words because not only has it happened and the cost of that, but it's gonna take time for them to clear the debris move these massive amounts of steel out of the way that probably aren't repairable. They've got to fix the dry dock. This is not simple for them to do. And so this is going to seriously affect what is the, you know, the main area that Russia repairs its Russian fleet for the Black Sea in occupied Crimea for probably months, maybe longer. But it's... It is not a good day. So I'll put in the episode notes of a photo of the submarine that was lost, a photo of the landing ship. It is a huge one. This is not some small ship. And uh, I'll even put in video that you can watch if you didn't catch it of the missiles raining in. It's uh, probably was not... I would not have wanted to be the rushing off, <laughs> Russian officer who had to go wake up Vladimir Putin and say, uh, Sir, we've... <laughs> We've just lost two more ships down in Ukraine today. Interestingly, I'd love to say that was the only news involving the Russian Navy for this week's episode, but it actually isn't. Ukraine retook a couple of oil rigs in the Black Sea, which is pretty significant. These were, depending on which source you look at, we'll just say 50 to 70 to maybe 100 kilometers. They're movable. They're floating oil rigs off of the coast of Odessa and the Crimean Peninsula. 
Russia had been using them to screen some electronic warfare. They'd had some troops on it. They had some radar on it. And they initially had planned to use them more aggressively to refuel helicopters and do other things. But the war has gone so bad for Russia that these haven't been used as much. They had even sustained a missile strike from Ukrainians forces um, a while ago, but at any rate, Ukraine realized they were still being used after this missile strike, and so they sent out some boats to take these two oil rigs, and they successfully did. You can see video of it. I'll put in a couple of news articles as well that when you have a moment, you can read them. They'll be in the Substack notes, but it's definitely, and there are some experts quoted. One of the articles is from Newsweek. There are some experts quoted about how Russia was using this radar not only to prevent drones and other aircraft from striking the Crimean Peninsula, but to control the Black Sea because, as we've said a hundred times, the Russian Navy can't really operate at sea anymore, so they're inside the ports. But they were using these floating oil rigs to monitor maritime activity, and so... Ukraine has taken these back. It's a pretty big deal. And you can read those two links if you want to read about what it will actually do for Ukraine in a little bit more detail. But slowly but surely, Ukraine, which basically has no navy, using nothing but drones and missiles, they are slowly but surely, they have pushed the Russian navy back to the port. Now the port isn't even safe for the Russian navy. I'm not sure what they go, where they go next if you're Russia, but I definitely did want to share about Ukraine retaking these oil rigs because it's a pretty big deal. Now, you'd probably be safe in thinking, man, that's a lot on Vladimir Putin's plate. I'm sure there's not much else he has to worry about. But unfortunately, besides all these military losses, besides the front you know, being pretty unstable as well, the naval losses, the ruble absolutely plummeting. They also have another thing that Mr. Putin has to worry about, which is that I was a little shocked to see this story, although I probably should have been, but there is literally a fuel crunch happening inside Russia on some of the outer provinces. Now, Vladimir Putin is smart, and so he's mostly allowing these situations to affect the less affluent and the more poor folks that are under him. This isn't affecting Moscow yet or any of the big cities. But I'll share a link in the uh, Substack notes if you want to go read about it. That right now there are places where you cannot buy fuel in Russia. And, you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, people are kind of speculating on on Twitter and other places that maybe this fuel crunch will be the thing that finally gets Putin you know, in some pretty serious trouble at home because I don't know about you, but if you've ever been like near a hurricane or any kind of natural disaster, when there's a fuel line or when you can't get fuel or there's even the start of a threat that you can't get fuel, it's just kind of scary. It's a, you know, it's like it brings up the old survival instincts in, in a human because, you know, for years and years and decades and decades, we all go and buy fuel when we want. We complain about the price a little bit, but it's there. But when it's not, oh man, dinner just tastes different, doesn't it? When you're worrying about trying to be the first in line, when you're worried about will the 
gas show up? Will it be there? How much are they going to allow you to buy? Those are not fun questions. And those aren't fun questions whether you speak English or Russian or any other language. But if you get a second, take a look at the article. Again, it's probably only going to be for a couple of months, month or two. But just another thing that if you're Vladimir Putin, it's just probably one of those things you don't really want to have to deal with. But he's having to deal with it. All right, let's move from that to a bit of another kind of, I mean, I don't know how else to describe it except shocking, but a little bit of a shocking news or aggressive, I guess is the right word, but I'm still using the word shocking. But the UK, it came out this week. Initially, the story was broke by The Telegraph. It's now in Yahoo News and a few other news sources that UK jets are now protecting ships that are carrying Ukrainian grain in the Black Sea. So for those that can recall, a few months ago, once the U.S. drone was damaged, the U.S. kind of took a step back in the Black Sea from some of their surveillance flights. They initially said they didn't, but several military analysts that keep up with the stuff on Twitter and track all these aircraft and some of the flyovers realized that America kind of did step back. But yet again, the U.K. is kind of leading the U.S., They've been the first to do several things, from tanks to talking about aircraft before we did. They decided to send those Storm Shadow missiles before we sent anything that far, that had that far of range. But as of right now, UK jets are protecting ships that are carrying Ukrainian grain in the Black Sea, which, you know, there have been a lot of people that worried about escalation or World War III or a lot of those fears were completely overblown in in my mind in previous months. But I will say, as you start having NATO aircraft, such as the UK, protecting ships, you are getting closer to the kind of territory where actual NATO aircraft could interact with Russian aircraft in an active war theater. This isn't like flying over near the UK or flying over Europe and having two jets kind of streak by each other. This is in a war zone. It's a little bit more dangerous situation, but you can easily find several stories on that, and I'll throw a link in the Substack notes if you want to read that as well, but It makes me wonder if maybe now that the UK has taken the lead, if other NATO countries will try to protect some of this grain that needs to leave Ukraine since Russia exited the grain deal, if they will do more to protect it. And of course, this all comes full circle from almost a year ago when I talked about and other folks, other analysts about some type of joint allied slash NATO naval force to protect some of these ships so it was talked about almost a year ago and now it's starting to happen just a quick reminder if you love what you're listening to and would like to help support the show you can do so by signing up as a monthly paying subscriber for five dollars per month you can help us sustain grow and improve the show again you can help support the show for only five dollars per month Come and go as you wish. You can find all the details on my Substack page. That's stanrmitchell.substack.com. 
substack.com. Again, stanrmitchell.substack.com, or just find it in the episode notes. Thanks so much, guys. Moving to some news about U.S. forces, I did want to share that I don't think this is too, too important yet, but, you know, you never know. But the Pentagon did announce that the U.S. is shifting some forces inside Niger. They had a military coup happen there, and so there are actually 1,100 troops there. And so they're moving them from one one base inside that country to another. The news from the Pentagon says they don't expect any kind of situation or anything, but did want to definitely mention that situation because I'm sure that is a tense situation to say the least. I've got a link in the Substack if you want to read about it. It talks about where they're at in there and where they're being moved to. So obviously one of the areas is called Airport 101. It's near the capital and then other ones called Airport 201. But again, the Pentagon is saying there's no threat to American troops, no threat of violence on the ground. I haven't really kept up with the situation a whole lot, but they move, they're moving these troops about 920 kilometers by road. So I've got a note in the, or a link in the Substack notes if you want to look that up. And then you can look up the two cities on, you know, in maps and get a better feel for exactly what's going on. I know that Niger is not a country that most people are very familiar with or have kept up with a lot. So I'm not going to go into that too much yet because I'm not sure what it means, if anything, for U.S. forces or relations there. Oh man, this next story. Guys, I have tried and tried and tried to avoid talking about what I'm about to share because I do not want to get into politics. I don't want to make this show about that. But, man... For better than three weeks or more, I've tried to avoid talking about this, but I'm going to share the least political link I can find about it, but it is an issue. It does involve the troops, and I'm discussing or referring to the fact that Senator Tuberville of the great state of Alabama has now been holding up the nominations of, we've now crossed 301 senior military leaders 301 at a time when we're trying to confront China at a time when recruiting's at an you know a very low difficult challenging time unfortunately politics has also once again crossed into the lines I don't want to say for the first time because it's certainly probably back in Vietnam It's probably those on the left trying to kneecap the military. But unfortunately, at this point, Senator Tuberville, by himself, without the support of most Republicans, is holding up a ton of promotions. And initially, I was like, I'm just going to try to let this be. But one of the things, it's gotten so bad that the Pentagon put out a very watered-down, non-political press release about it and that's what I'm sharing a link to can't get any you know less political than that the Pentagon does not want to make the Republicans mad the Pentagon does not want to make the Democrats mad because depending on who's winning at the time they control the purse strings so 
The Pentagon tries its best. The Pentagon cares most about one thing, which is staying funded and trying to win wars. They try not to get into the politics, but I'm sharing a link in the Substack notes. This is what really caught my eye. Two things. First of all, those who aren't Senate confirmed to their higher position, they're having to hold multiple jobs. So in the Marine Corps, as you've probably seen on the news, because it did make news, the Marine Corps doesn't have an accommodant for the first time in like 100 plus years. Well, the Marine Corps General Eric Smith, who's going to become that commandant when the Senate gets its act together and quits allowing one person to hold the entire chamber hostage, but Senator, or I'm sorry, a General Commandant General Smith, or who will hopefully be the commandant, if they can get their act together, but General Smith, he has to serve two roles right now. He's serving as the assistant commandant and the acting commandant. So, literally, they have to continue to fill their current job because there's no one who can replace them there. There's like literally statutory limitations to what they can do. And then they got to to be to serve as an acting member of the next one. So this is not a good situation. This is unfortunately this General Smith's been doing these two jobs for since May. It's just not a good situation at all. And so I don't really know what the answer is, but Senator Tuberville has shown no, absolutely no, there's no appearance that he's going to change. He's very proud of this. He's fundraising off of it. He's really pushing the issue of, you know, preventing abortions and kind of taking the culture wars to the military, which is the last thing we need to do on either side, whether it's just either side. Let's let's not do that with the military, but... If it doesn't change, by the end of the year, it's going to be 650, up from 301 to 650 of the 850 potential nominations. So I did want to mention it. I'm, again, trying to stay out of the politics. But link is in the Substack notes if you want to read more. It's as neutral an article as you're going to find on it. Now, before we get to the motivation and wisdom section, let's pivot to China just for a moment. I'm going to share two links in the Substack notes that I want to briefly mention. The first involves a key Pentagon official discussing some of the achievements and successes, as is, as they term it, on the U.S. strategy in the Indo-Pacific. It's a pretty good article, actually, and it does summarize a lot of the things we've covered but wanted to put the link in if you want to take a look because the number of countries that are increasingly working together is it's pretty impressive. We've talked about many of them, the Philippines, New Zealand, Indonesia, Vietnam, Australia, obviously, Japan, South Korea. And it goes into the weeds a bit about some of the things these countries are increasingly communicating about sort of beginning to operate toward adjusting their political posture so that essentially, increasingly, China can't just, you know, maneuver and affect one of these countries where it's like a very big bully pushing around a little one. It's all these countries are increasingly putting together 
relationships that will allow them to hopefully deter and prevent China from acting too aggressively. And then the second thing, and this is almost just as impressive, last week, or it might have been the week before, I apologize, but the episodes run together, but we did talk about the, what at that point had been the largest or largest training event in Australia called Talisman Sabre, which was U.S. and partner forces. And there were a lot of countries involved. I went into the weeds a bit about what countries were involved. And literally just a couple of weeks later, there's another massive event happening. It kicked off just days ago. It's got troops from Australia, Japan, Singapore. Again, note Japan. But Japan, Singapore, France, United Kingdom, also involved. Several countries sent observers. Check out this list. Brazil, Canada, Germany, India, Malaysia, the Netherlands, New Zealand, uh, Papua New Guinea, Philippines, South Korea, and then a small country, uh, a couple of small countries that are island countries that you probably haven't heard of that I barely know. Won't even try to pronounce them. But a lot of, oh, just a lot of cross-training happening. I s- put the link in the Substack notes if you want to take a look at that. But this is kind of how, you know, militaries initially begin aligning and coordinating their capabilities. As you begin with just some senior officers, enlisted members training and getting a little more familiar with allied or coalition forces and then eventually you start bringing more troops but you can do a lot even though the numbers aren't huge in this most recent exercise you can do a lot by sending leaders over and getting familiar with other equipment with command structure and role playing you know we talked earlier about using sand tables, but you could do a lot without a lot of troops. So definitely worth keeping an eye on this. Again, the link's in the substack if you want to take a look at that. All right, you guys have been patient. Let's get to the best part of the show. This is the motivation and wisdom section. I share these each week because I believe quite strongly that we could all benefit from a pep talk and that we could all reap some profit by hearing deep insight and wisdom, all of which is lacking in our hurried, very shallow world. So here's the first one. Do it alone. Do it broke. Do it tired. Do it scared. Just do it. It's a pretty good one. Someone obviously grab the Nike slogan and add it to it. Do it alone, do it broke, do it tired, do it scared, just do it. Next one. The only downside of improving yourself, it gets lonely. Again, that one is the only downside of improving yourself, it gets lonely. Next one. Get better all the time. That's how you succeed. Pretty simple. Gets better all the time. That's how you succeed. This next one's a good one. Forgive your old self. You've changed. Man, we will not let go of the past, will we? Again, that one is forgive your old self. You've changed. 
Next one, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. It's a great quote. Again, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. Next one, love yourself, respect yourself. Never sell yourself short. Believe in yourself regardless of what other people think. You can accomplish anything, absolutely anything, if you set your mind to it. This next one's a quote from Muhammad Ali. I hated every minute of training, but I said, don't quit, suffer now, and live the rest of your life as a champion. It's a pretty good one. Once read, uh, I believe it was Bear Bryant that said, uh, everyone wants to win, but not everybody wants to put in the work to win. It's kind of a similar quote there. Again, the quote from Muhammad Ali was, I hated every minute of training, but I said, don't quit. Suffer now and live the rest of your life as a champion. Next one. Give yourself credit for trying. Working on yourself can be hard, but the rewards of not giving up can really change your life. Keep going. That's another good one, is it not? Alright, let's do a few more here. Here is the next one. Don't dream your life. Live your life. It's a good one. We've all got those friends who talk big, but don't back it up. Don't dream your life. Live your life. Next one. What are you excited about today? That is a great question to ask ourselves. I think especially as you get into adulthood and you got kids and day job and everything else, sometimes it's just run here, run to that errand, take the kid here, take the kids there. You got to do this with the, you know, the family. And the question is, what are you excited about today? It's a good one. If you don't have something, maybe you need to figure out what that is. All right, let's go to another one. Hard times will always reveal true friends. Again, hard times will always reveal true friends. Next one. You're only doing a disservice to yourself by thinking small. Man, that's a good one. You're only doing a disservice to yourself by thinking small. I thought this week I'd also share a few from a book I'm reading. This book is called Courage is Calling. It's by Ryan Holiday. Again, Courage is Calling by Ryan Holiday. There were just three little points I wanted to share from the book. First one is a quote from General Mattis. He's obviously the legendary Marine Corps general. The quote is, Cynicism is cowardice. It takes courage to care. Only the brave believe especially when everyone else is full of doubt. So again, the quote is, Cynicism is cowardice. It takes courage to care. Only the brave believe, especially when everyone else is full of doubt. Then continuing, here's another one from it. They will laugh at you. Losers have always gotten together in little groups and talked about winners. The hopeless have always mocked the hopeful. The scared do their best to convince the brave that there is no point in trying. 
Man, that is like so, so good. And then the final one was a quote from Gandhi in the book, who obviously was a pacifist and believed in nonviolence. But the book talks about that, you know, there are times when self-defense or defending maybe a kid or a wife, that even if you're a pacifist, there are just times where you cannot stand by. And the quote from Gandhi is, when there is only a choice between cowardice and violence, I would choose violence. Again, when there is only a choice between cowardice and violence, I would choose violence. Again, that's in self-defense situations or trying to defend someone who's weaker. Now, we'll do a hard shift and do, let's do a couple or so from the Bible. Here is the first one. Day by day, the Lord takes care of the innocent, and they will receive a reward that lasts forever. It's from Psalms chapter 37, verse 18. Again, the verse is, Day by day, the Lord takes care of the innocent, and they will receive a reward that lasts forever. The next one is also from Psalms chapter 20, verse 4. May God give you the desire of your heart and make all of your plans succeed. Again, that one is, May God give you the desire of your heart and make all of your plans succeed. I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. I always think that's a good one to end with. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. As a reminder... Please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. So many men and women have sacrificed, fought, and died to keep this country together the past 240 years. Please work daily to unite our country again. The vast majority of Americans are decent, loving, great people. Also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. For those who are listening for the first time, let me say a bit more about myself and the podcast. My name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a prior infantry Marine who dropped the sword and picked up the pen. After joining the Marine Corps at the age of 17 to serve four years in the infantry, I exited military service, earned a degree, and spent 10-plus years in the news business, initially as a reporter, but then going on to start a weekly newspaper in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, from 2004 to 2013. But once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 12 books, and while it's true I'm still writing, I'm now here as well, a once-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. I don't claim to have all the answers, but I do think that much can be gained from discussing these issues and creating a community where we intelligently discuss the troubles confronting us and where we work to come closer together and respect each other's views with more patience and kindness. A house divided cannot stand, and I strongly believe that more unites us than divides us. I will not remain silent while politicians, seeking their own personal gain, try to throw gas on a dangerous fire, doing their best to tear apart this country so that they can advance to a higher office. 
We face great challenges as a country, but America has stood together for more than 240 years, and it's only together that we can pass on a better future for our kids. So let's get a little better informed, and let's work to get a little more united as a people. Thank you for being patient and allowing me to share that monologue. I think it's important people hear what I'm about, and I think it's also important my regular listeners hear this message enough that it sinks in, that it affects what they believe, that it affects how they act. We need to hold and cherish the beliefs that got us here today, beliefs such as kindness, patience, and a strong belief that our best days lie before us. These are the beliefs that got us to this point, and they're also the beliefs that will get us to a brighter future. Thanks again for your patience and for listening. I know it's not the sort of fast-paced, really hip, Twitter-friendly, TikTok-cool message that fits most podcasts that go viral, but maybe we've got a few too many podcasts that are like that. Maybe we need to go back to something deeper, to something firmer and more solid, to something we can build a foundation from, and that's what I'm offering. Now, we're almost to the end of the show, and I'd be a fool not to mention my books. I write fast-paced books, and when I say fast-paced, I mean like really fast-paced books. And if you read the reviews, people say they are gripping, compelling, and full of twists and turns. I've written a dozen books to date, and I've been fortunate to have sold more than 70,000 copies. And guys, these are independently published. There isn't some big company pushing these. These are straight-up word-of-mouth sales. So if you're one of those who've bought a, a book or more than one book, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. If you're one of those folks who've just shared links or told others about me, it's a great way to support the show. All of my books can be found on Amazon, and they are primarily about military thrillers. I've got a series about a Marine Corps sniper. I've got some police detective ones, but you can find all of them on Amazon just by searching my name, Stan R. Mitchell. Make sure you include the R. You will find them no problem. You will see they all have averages of more than four uh, four plus stars and thousands of reviews on them. So they're great gifts. They're also great for yourself if you're interested in them. So thanks so much, guys, for sticking it out with me. I hope you got something from the show, and I look forward to seeing you guys here same time, same place next Thursday.